Good morning, church. I'm excited to have this opportunity to share from God's Word. I want to encourage you as always, remember this is about the Word of God, and this is the Word of God. And it's active, and it, it pierces, and it can cut deep, and it can hurt at times, but it's for our good. And so let's remember that's what it is, and let's go to it expecting those things. And um, We recognize... In Scripture, there are three enemies of the church, three enemies of the gospel. There's the world. The world is against us. Christ warns His disciples, the world's against you before He leaves. He says, as they've hated me, they will also hate you. And then there's also what we dub the greatest enemy, ourself. We are selfish. The world's selfish, and so they're our enemy. We're selfish, and so we're our enemy. And we are sinful by nature even after our justification we turn back to sin because we're foolish we turn back to sin because we don't see sin as that big of a deal and we will always struggle with that for as long as we're here but Christ has conquered those things and we're going to address that and I think the third enemy the one that most people would say right away Satan I think I've tended to maybe you have as well let off of Satan a little bit. I, I want to take on more blame myself. And, and we don't really talk about him very much because we don't over-spiritualize things. But I just want to take a moment before we get into this text to sober our minds and remind us all that we have an enemy who is out to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan aims to kill every effort to proclaim the gospel that we as God's people would want to proclaim. He, he aims to hinder Every step that we strive to take as the people of God on mission. He is not for us in any way at all. He will do anything he can to manipulate, to deceive, to discourage, to distract, and to destroy our faith. He is the father of lies and deception, and he's good at it. He hates everyone. And he doesn't always fight us with the explicit big sinful things. In fact, his tactics are more likely going to look like apathy. They're going to look like indifference towards sin, false securities, seemingly justifiable exceptions to the rules. Satan is deceptive and he's good at it. And he will weasel his way into our lives, into our families, into our church, and he will pick at the seams of the fabric until we don't notice And it just unravels. And he can convince us that everything's fine. And he can convince us that sin isn't that bad. And if he's done that, then he's already got a foothold. His lies are convincing and and we're foolish. And in our foolishness, we want to believe the lies. And the lie has really been the same since the beginning. In the garden, there's surely something more, Satan whispers. There's surely something more. God isn't enough. And that's still the lie today. And we so often believe it. And so we need to guard ourselves against these things. We need to guard ourselves against ourselves. We need to guard ourselves against the world. And we need to guard ourselves against Satan. And so the the theme of this passage, the title, if you want one, is we guard our hearts with gratitude for the gospel. We guard our hearts with gratitude 
for the gospel. We are weak, and therefore we need to have hearts guarded. But we don't always know what that means. We say it, we want it, but we don't always know what that means. And so as we've walked through Colossians so far, I think we've seen some pretty clear themes. Christ is supreme in His authority, in His power, in His victory. He's sufficient as we trust Him alone. He's sufficient to reconcile us to the Father. He's sufficient to sanctify us. And He's sufficient to satisfy every need that we have. Yet we so easily put our affections in other things. We so easily turn back to our sin and the desires for knowledge and for wisdom and for what the world has to offer overwhelm us and in a way that we're saying Christ has failed to do so. We refuse to believe Jesus is sufficient and so we put our energies in finding what we're missing out on. And the same problem was going on in, in Colossae and Paul writes this letter to show them, look, it's all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. He is sufficient. He is supreme. All you need is Him. And he, spe- he spent the entire beginning of this letter explaining clearly, proclaiming the supremacy of Christ and how God has reconciled and He has sanctified all through Himself, all through Christ and Christ alone. And I think that we can follow these things like this. In order to guard ourselves from deception and delusion, let's follow the sequence that we've seen in Colossians leading up to what we're about to dive into. Paul has described, first, he's greeted them. He said, hey. First, he he tells them he loves them. He tells them, I'm for you. He prays for them. And then he describes the richness and the sufficiency of Christ better than anywhere else, really, in Scripture. The the Christ-centeredness of First, the Colossians chapter 1 is incredible. And he also tells them of his struggles. He tells them of his fight for them to demonstrate sacrificial love to them in hopes that it will stir in them an affection for one another. He wants to encourage them to demonstrate that love together, to be knit together in love, knowing that that will lead to an assurance and understanding of the mysteries of God which Christ has been he will be and has will always be and all of that results in a freedom in the gospel and that's what we want to see a freedom in the gospel from delusion from deceit and from our enemy so recall jared mentioning last week this is paul's motive desire he wants them to be so familiar with christ so familiar with the real thing that all false things would be obviously false would be obviously temporary and fleeting at best. And so let's look into this next section of Scripture, Colossians 2, 6 through 15. We're going to find in here, this, is, this really is the meat of the whole letter. This is what it's leading up to and what he's about to follow is all about this. It's the heart of this whole letter. And we're going to see what Paul wants us to do. We're going to see how he wants us to do it. And we're going to see how it's actually been done by God in us and for us. So let's read. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt and stood against us in the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is loaded with gospel truth. It is it like first time through preparing the sermon would have been at least three hours long if we dive into it. And I'm not even that far along in understanding how to study scripture. So I'm sure like John Piper could get like 40 years out of it. I mean, this is packed. And we're going to try to break it down. We're going to walk through it slowly. We're going to see the depths of it. And hopefully you allow it to read you, to convict you back to God. Hopefully you see this is God coming after you. This is what he has done so that you can know him and find freedom and satisfaction in him because Christ is sufficient. And that's my hope for me as well. And so first of all, what do we do and how do we do it? Verses 6 through 8 lays this out for us. It's, this is of this chunk, uh, this is really what leads into what we're going to talk about next time. Paul is telling us what all of this means, why he's exalted Christ so highly. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord, so you have received him. Don't think of it as someone offering you a piece of gum and you saying, yeah, sure, I'll take it. It's not receiving it like it's something, okay? It's Christ is yours. You have taken him on. He is covered you. He has possessed you. He's made you his. You're covered in him. You've received him. He's on you. You're in him. You have received Christ. Past tense. It's been done. It's happened. So just as you have received Christ, and that's actually, I think, a better translation instead of as, same word, but it can be translated, just as you have received Christ, you also should walk in him. Just like you received him, walk in him. And this is active and it's an imperative and it's happening right now. We walk in him. This is the first of many imperatives that Paul's going to give throughout the rest of this letter. Christianity is not a theological knowledge or a list of do's and don'ts. It's not the right words or just doing the right things. It's walking in Christ and he enables you to do what is right. It's a lifestyle of faith. That's chapter 1 verse 10. Salvation is not things to do or a product to possess or receive. Salvation is the person of Jesus Christ who has possessed you. And that's what Paul wants us to see here. When he's going into this, he needs you to see, he needs us to understand salvation is Christ possessing us so that we can walk in him. But how do we do that? Verses 7 and 8. 
rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, verse 8, we're going to just quick look at it. We're going to talk about what these heresies are, what these philosophies are next time. So I don't want to spend too much time on verse 8, but just a quick look at it. We see Taken Captive. I want you to consider the movie Taken if you've seen it. If you've not, it's a pretty good movie. I mean, you probably shouldn't watch it with your kids, but it's incredible. Taken, this Liam Neeson's daughter, stolen from him. So Taken, this is the same way Paul's using it. I don't think he saw this movie, but this is the way he's using this phrase. Taken captive. It's only used here in the entire New Testament. It's a strong language, and it's very negative. It's being duped or tricked into a trap. It's being kidnapped, caught off guard, fooled into something, stolen away, namely by these empty, deceitful human philosophies. It's not a good thing. Fortunately, our Father is greater than Liam Neeson, and He will come after us. We'll talk about that next time. But also at the end of that verse, you see it says, not according to Christ. So we're not sure exactly what the heresies are, but it doesn't matter. They're not according to Christ. So verse 7 is, I'm very grateful for verse 7. If if God just said, walk in me and didn't give us verse 7, it would be difficult. But he's laid out for us four modifiers. So, so we're about to see four things that describe, they point back to walking in him. So the four modifiers are rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. What we need to see here is rooted in him is produced by God. Built up in him is produced by God. Established in faith is produced by God. And we know those to be true because Paul writes them in a passive voice. He says, you're rooted in him. You're not in control of it. God's in control of it. He has rooted you in himself. You're built up in him. You're not in control of your sanctification. God does it. And you're established in your faith. You have faith because it's a gift from God. But abounding in thanksgiving is 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 rooted in the active voice. So abounding in thanksgiving is for God, but it's something we express. He has done this work. We respond actively with thanksgiving. And these are all characteristics of walking in Him, something we're commanded to do here by Paul. In the first first chapter, this is actually a passage I preached, Paul prays these things. He says, I pray that you would walk in Him. I pray that you would be thankful. But now He's commanding it. If you're in Christ, walk in Him and be thankful. So why don't we? Why don't we walk in Him? Why aren't we expressing gratitude always? Well, I think it's obvious. We talk about it all the time. I think we don't. Because we don't see and know and believe that we're rooted in Him. That we're built up in Him. That we're established in faith. And therefore, we're not abounding in thanksgiving. We're not overflowing in gratitude. So often we doubt and we deviate because we don't believe. It's easier to believe 
the lies of the enemy, especially when they're leading us to temporary satisfaction. We want to believe those things. We desire those things. And we indulge in our sin because it feels good. And even if it's temporary, I mean, Christ died for it. He's showing grace. So, right? He's going to be gracious anyway. We convince ourselves of these foolish things. And we, we believe they're true because we don't believe we're rooted in Him. We don't believe we're being built up in Him. And we don't believe we're establishing our faith. But I think that Paul's making it clear here that in order to protect against those things, we have to guard our hearts with gratitude. And he says, just as you have received Christ, so walk in Him. How have we received Christ? By grace, through faith. So how are we to walk in Christ? How are we to accomplish these things? By grace, through faith. If you believe the gospel is true, then your lifestyle will reflect it. You can't fake it. If you believe it's true, it's displayed. Your belief is displayed. If your life doesn't display the gospel, you don't believe it. So how can you claim belief and not display it? You can't. Or you're lying. So let's look into verse 7. Which of these can we see in our everyday walk? Which of these are displayed? And I have it on a slide for you so you can see it a little more clearly. We can see that we're rooted in Him when good fruit is produced. We know that God has been faithful to root us in Him when we're producing good fruit. And we can see that we're built up in Him when we grow over time. We grow in depth and understanding and, and in, our, in our fellowship with others, we grow. And we can see that we're established in faith when we continue to believe, even when it makes no sense to believe. But the one way we display an active role is abounding in thanksgiving. And we're thankful for all that Christ has accomplished. So is your life seasoned with gratitude? Are you thankful for life? Are you seeing the grace of God and expressing gratitude? God desires thanksgiving so much that He commands it of us here for His glory and for our protection from the enemy. Our hearts, hearts of gratitude protect us from being taken captive by deceit. John Piper says, this is a paraphrase, he says, gratitude is a continual song that we must sing to guard ourselves. It's a song we sing, and, and you see that when you sing the song of gratitude, God repulses Satan. He diffuses Satan's weapon. When we sing gratitude for what God has done, Satan is no, nowhere near deceiving us. But when we don't sing it, the enemy comes and he comes into our lives. He takes our hearts captive. And before long, we are so bound that we are incapable of seeing anything to be grateful for. Satan deceives us and blinds us so much so we can't see God at all. We don't see him blessing us at all. We don't see the daily breathing. We don't see the daily bread as things to be thankful for because we're blind because our hearts have been taken captive by worldly things. Paul emphasizes this to the Romans in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 21, for although they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's what we're talking about. And it gets worse from there. God gives them up to their sin. He gives them over to it. And they begin to worship creation instead of the Creator. They worship what they believe to be good instead of the giver of all good things. And it goes crazy. And that's where our hearts lead us when we don't thank God. Also, Paul writes at the end of this letter as a summary and a final words of wisdom. He says in chapter 4, verse 2 of Colossians, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray. Be watchful with thanksgiving. Look for what to be thankful for. And sing songs of praise. Sing songs of thankfulness. It's clear in order to guard our hearts from worshiping creation to worship the Creator to guard our hearts from the enemy in order to walk in Christ, in order to be rooted in Christ, to be built built up in Christ, in order to be established in our faith, it is clear that we must be grateful, abundantly thankful. And thankful for what? The gospel. We're thankful for the gospel. And so all of this is made possible by what God is doing in us and what God is doing has done for us. And so let's read this next passage. And, and just so you know, 8 through 15 is just, it's really a, a restatement of Christ's sufficiency. It's, it's, re, it's one sentence. Paul's just saying, look, here's what I've said to you because we're about to go into some of the heresies going on there. So here's what I've said to you. Understand this is what this means. And so let's look at it. We've gone over verse 8. Let's go to verse 9. And we're going to see the sufficiency of Christ in authority and in His power. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's none other than God. He is God. One God, Christ, and all of it dwells in His body. And you have been filled in Him. He is in us. He's covered us. We are His. Who is the head, rule, and authority? He is the head, the rule of all authority, in all authority. He's completely sufficient in all authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, death to our flesh, we're buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So spiritual life from that death. So with all authority and all power, Christ has sufficiently done all that is necessary to save us. Everything has been accomplished in Christ. And we need to see here, Paul illustrates it for us in two ways, and I'm always grateful when he does the illustration for us. I want to start with the second one, resurrection. Verse 13 says, we were dead, but we were made alive together with him. Resurrection is something we celebrate at Easter. 
but it's something we should be celebrating every day. We were dead. Dead. What do dead people do? They lie there dead. Helpless. Can't do anything. But God has sufficiently brought us back to life. In Him alone do we find life. He has resurrected us spiritually. And eventually we will have resurrected bodies physically, but if the spiritual resurrection doesn't happen, then the physical resurrection only leads to condemnation, to death, ongoing suffering in hell forever. Everyone will be resurrected. Everyone will live again. Some have experienced spiritual resurrection and will live with God forever. Others will suffer forever in hell. So the resurrection is what Christ has done. This is, this is a picture of what He's done in us. He's done in, the, in us a spiritual resurrection. And the second one is a little bit more foreign to us. Circumcision is an illustration of what God has done in us. And so it says, In Him who you were circumcised with, a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body and the flesh, the circumcision of Christ. So Christ circumcises us. In, this is internal. We are the cut off the old self. It's cut off. It's done away with. It's put away. So he's brought life. He's given new life. And he's done away with the old. So two pictures of what God has done in us. We're resurrected, given life. And the old you, the sinful you, the one who's constantly believing the lies of the enemy, the one who's constantly going back to sinful things, he is cut off. It's done away with. It's gone. And we need to see clearly. So in the Old Testament, it was a covenant with God. Circumcision was a covenant with God. We are part of of the community of God. In In the New Testament, it's no longer a requirement, but Because Christ has fulfilled it. Because He has done it. The new symbol of our belonging to the covenant body is that we are circumcised internally. That we have been made new. We are made His. We are covered in Christ, brought to life, and the old self done away with. And that is our covenant with God. It's done without hands. And so as a side note, I think it's important that we point out here what some would use this 11 and 12 to represent. Our good friends, the Presbyterians, baptize their babies because they believe baptism is the replacement, the physical baptism is a replacement of the physical act of circumcision in the Old Testament. So just as they saw it as belonging to the covenant, Presbyterians believe in what's called paedo-baptism, baptizing babies to belong to the covenant body. Other churches baptize babies, but I would say that most clearly I've seen Presbyterian Uh, confessions of faith, use this very passage to back that up. And so I want to show you why we at the Crossing Church don't believe that. We believe baptism is the complete immersion of a believer in burial representation and bringing him or her out of the water in life representation, what Christ has done in us. We represent physically in baptism. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. We do not believe that it has any salvific quality at all. The physical baptism has no salvific quality. It doesn't save us at all. And we do not see it as a replacement of Old Testament covenant. We see it as representation of what's happening internally. And so the way we can read this, the key here I think is in verse 11. It's a circumcision made without hands. 
the circumcision of Christ. So it's not that baptism replaces Old Testament circumcision, it's that Old Testament circumcision is replaced by New Testament circumcision. Christ has internally, spiritually cut off the old you and made you a part of the covenant community. And so we represent that by baptism. We represent this internal circumcision by external baptism, but it's also an internal baptism. We've been washed by the water. We've been washed by the blood of Christ. We are cleansed. We are being clean. And we, we, ex- we celebrate that excitedly because it, nothing to do with us. The process hasn't saved us. Nothing we've done has saved us. We've not tricked God into letting us in because we did some ritual. And so in response to that, Presbyterians would say, well, this is only a prescription to what you do for a believer as an adult. So they would say that 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 doesn't really say you don't baptize babies. It says that as an adult, if someone's a believer, you baptize them to represent their salvation. So you can, so, okay, that's why they continue to be a church because they can have that justification. So what we have done, there's two sides to this. You either believe it's prescriptive or you believe it's a fundamental definition of baptism. And we believe as at the Crossing Church that this is a fundamental definition of baptism. It's representative of something Christ has done internally for the believer. And so that also means if you are a believer and not been baptized, you're in disobedience. So we want to call you to repentance in that way. Celebrate your conversion. Celebrate that Christ has resurrected you spiritually and he's cut off the old you spiritually. And so this life from death and doing away with the old self is what God has done in us. That's resurrection and circumcision. But he's also done something for us that we see in the rest of this passage. Christ is sufficient not only in authority and power, but also in victory. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we have two enemies defeated here in this passage. The record of debt and the authorities and rulers. Two enemies outwardly, objectively, beyond us, yet for us, defeated by Christ and His death on the cross. That first enemy, the record of debt, was filed against us by the law of God. So we can see it as the law of God in the, in the courtroom of heaven. The law of God stands against us, condemning us. One translation says, hostile towards us by its legal demands. And we cannot pay it. We are condemned. We stand convicted. We will be punished. There's no hope except for Christ who has canceled the debt, cleared us of guilt, of shame. He's cleared us of what was impossible. The debt is paid off. It's canceled. It's gone. So the weight you feel, the weight of shame, 
the weight of hopelessness, the weight of not finding freedom from your sin, the hatred of yourself because you continue to turn back to sin. It's covered. It's canceled. It's cleared. You're not guilty. You're free now in the gospel. There's constraints of the law that are still there, but Christ has fulfilled the law. So if you live in Him, you live within this law that is meant to protect you. It's for your good, and it glorifies God when you live in it because you're living in Christ who's fulfilled the law. He's established you in your faith. He's building you up in Himself. And He's rooted you deeply in Him so that you can produce good fruit for His glory and for your good. This is, this is what makes it so beautiful. You're convicted, and He's canceled the debt. It's just done. Victory is done, yet we, con- we continue to struggle, and it makes sense that we continue to struggle. The second enemy is rulers and authorities. In these, Paul speaks of elsewhere in Ephesians that they are spiritual beings, the devil and his forces. And so the struggle is real and it's continued. Ephesians says that we, the believers, will continue to wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces and of the evil in the heavenly places. But... Colossians says he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. So the fight is real. The struggle is real. But we wrestle in the power of Christ and his victory over them, the blood he has shed, and they are good for us. It's good for us to struggle, but it's good because he has defeated them already. Revelation 12, 11 says, and they... That is, the believers have conquered him, that is Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not themselves, they loved not their own lives, even unto death. So we would give our all for this because we know the victory is secure. We must fight the good fight, but we battle knowing Christ has victory. He's sufficient in his victory, and the Lord has made a decisive blow. At the death of Christ. It's done. It's over with. It's like Narnia. When the fight's going on, there's battle. Everyone's going crazy. What's going to happen? We're scared. The White Witch seems to be winning. And then Aslan shows up. And it's not like Aslan has to struggle and fight. Oh, she's beating me. When Aslan shows up, it's over. It's done. There's not a fight. The battle is done. When Christ died, he has victory. It's over. We fight. Because He has put us here to fight. We're sanctified in the struggle. We continue, not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities, against these rulers, against these authorities in the spiritual world because that's more real than our physical world. But don't be fooled into thinking there's going to be some cosmic battle at the end and Christ is going to whip out a sword and struggle to fight Satan because it's done. Have hope in knowing it's finished. He's nailed our sins to the cross in His flesh. He's nailed them to the cross. We're not, we're not worried about that. And He has conquered Satan, put Him into open shame. All authorities, all things against us are in open shame because He is victorious over them. It's done. Guys, this is much bigger than anything we're prepared to deal with, and that's why God 
has dealt with it for us. We incurred a debt that was insurmountable. We have an enemy that is much more powerful than we are. But Christ is sufficient. The legal demands of the law covered. Satan conquered. And so, we're left with all that in mind to ask ourselves to consider our state as a crossing church, our state as believers. Are we walking in Christ? How are we doing so? Established in faith, built up in Him, rooted in Him. Are we doing so in our relationships with people? Consider the people in your life, your family, your spouse, your children, your friends, your acquaintances, your Facebook friends. Consider all the people you encounter in every area of life. Are you walking in Christ? Or are you using and abusing for selfish gain? Are you desiring from them what they're not meant to give you? Or are you seeing Christ as sufficient? Are we doing so in our day-to-day lives as we encounter new people, as we have our secret sin, as we live in public and as we live in secret? Are we walking in Christ? And we'll know we are when we're grateful for what He's done. Otherwise, we cheapen the grace of God and we indulge in our sin and we believe the lies of the enemy and we foolishly fall into His traps and He takes captive our heart. In light of who we see and know Christ to be, if we continue to indulge in sin, it's likely you've never believed. So we want to call you to belief. We want to always have the door wide open for you to know this God to be sufficient. For you to find salvation in Him. For you to find freedom in the Gospel. And for you to no longer turn to your sin because we are called by God to receive Christ and walk in Christ, displaying the Gospel with our lives. And if we're not displaying the Gospel, then we're not believing. And there's no hope. So Christ is sufficient in His authority, in His power, in His victory. And we are to be grateful. And so church, let us sing songs of thanksgiving. Let us sing loud the song of thanksgiving because it guards us. Let's see our God as sufficient and be grateful. Let's pray. Lord, You are faithful and You are good. Lord, let us be broken with gratitude because we see we are helpless without You and You have so wonderfully, so graciously saved us. And as You have given us Yourself, You also have enabled us to walk in You. And so I pray that we would see what's before us and we would walk with great faith knowing that You are working in us And You have worked for us. And You are still for us. Even as we continue to sin, You come after us. Lord, let us feel that this morning. Let us know the enemy is real. And know You are sufficient. And as we continue to sing, as we take communion, as we give 
offering. I pray, God, that you would be praised in our hearts as individuals, that you would hear our voice as your body, as your church, and you would be praised, God, that your hearts would rejoice with affections for you that would totally eclipse all affections for all things in this world, that we would worship our Creator in a way that the things of this world are nothing. They're rubbish in comparison. So God, be glorified, be lifted high, be praised in every way. I thank you, Father, for what you've given us as a people, as a church, as individuals, as families. Thank you for your blessings. Let us truly be thankful in Jesus' name. Amen.